Well, our text this afternoon, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, and that makes this the fifth sermon in our series from Matthew's gospel. A lot of time has passed since last week's text. When we read in verse 1 of Matthew 3 that in those days John the Baptist came, those days are no longer the days of Jesus' young childhood. More than 25 years has gone by since the time Joseph took his family to Nazareth, and the infancy narrative in Matthew that we've been in over the last few weeks provided crucial background to clarify the identity of Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ of Israel. But now Matthew's moving the calendar ahead to focus his story on the public ministry of Jesus. Luke chapter 3, verse 23, says that Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And what we're considering this afternoon in Matthew 3 are events immediately preceding the beginning of that ministry. The young child who went to Nazareth last week is now a grown man. Only as we begin to consider Jesus' adult ministry, it's significant that Matthew doesn't begin with Jesus. He begins with John the Baptist. Jesus won't appear in chapter 3 until verse 13, the text that Deacon Marion will take up next week in the baptism of Jesus. But it's fair to say that we learn a lot about him, about Jesus, in the 12 verses before us this afternoon. After all, it was the purpose of John's ministry to prepare for his arrival. My hope is that we too will attend to what John has to say, that we might be ready to receive all Jesus will do and teach in the weeks and months to come in our study of Matthew's gospel. I'd like to consider our text this afternoon then under two headings. First, from at least parts of verses 1 to 6, We'll consider the ministry of John the Baptist, and then second, looking at verse 2, as well as verses 7 to 12, we'll consider the message of John the Baptist. The ministry of John the Baptist, followed by the message of John the Baptist, not that you can separate the two, of course. You can't, because John's ministry, who John was and what John did, and even how John dressed, was connected in every respect with John's message. After all, verse 1 does not say, in those days John the Baptist came baptizing in the wilderness. It says John the Baptist came preaching, proclaiming, heralding, so that it is the message that's the real focus here, and we will spend most of our time looking at that. But there are some background matters to attend to that I think help us grasp that message. So let's consider verses 1 to 6 together with our focus on John's ministry. Who was John the Baptist? 
Well, perhaps it's a little surprising, though it's not the only gospel to do this. It's a little surprising to realize that Matthew never really tells us. We know some about John's background from Luke's gospel, that John was born to pious parents, both of whom were of the priestly line in Israel, also well advanced in age. We know that John's mother, Elizabeth, was a female relative of Jesus' mother, Mary. We know that prior to embarking on his public ministry, John lived for some period of time in the desert, but none of that's part of Matthew's account. In Matthew, John simply appears. It's later on in Matthew chapter 11 that Jesus will be the one to tell us who John is. If you want to turn there to see it, you can. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 7, we read that Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What then did you go out to see, Jesus asks them? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So that from Jesus' description later on in Matthew's Gospel, we know John was a prophet, but not just any prophet. Jesus quotes there in Matthew 11 from the prophet Malachi. This is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi says there's a messenger coming who will prepare the way of the Lord. Only according to Malachi, when that messenger comes to prepare the way of the Lord, what's on the horizon is the Lord's judgment. Malachi chapter 3, verse 5 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And it is with that prospect of the judgment to come that in fact the entire Old Testament ends, brothers and sisters. Or at least that's where it ends in the order of the books of the Old Testament that, that have come to be standard for us in the English Bible that's taken from the order of the books in the Greek Old Testament, which was the primary Bible of Matthew's day. Some 400 years before John the Baptist, we read in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. 
on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And then Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, the second or third to last verse in the Old Testament says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 is, that's John. That's who John the Baptist is. Matthew 11, verse 13, Jesus says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Which, back to our text in Matthew chapter 3, would certainly account for John's appearance. That is, the way he looked. On one level, John's austere dress here and his diet of locusts and honey was fitting for a figure who dwelt in the wilderness and preached repentance, but there was more to it than just that. Verse 4 of Matthew chapter 3 says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist might seem like an odd thing for Matthew to comment on in such detail until you recognize that that too connects John with Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, it's when the king of Samaria hears an account of what Elijah was wearing that he knows who it is that his messengers are talking about. The king's messengers tell him, 2 Kings 1, verse 8, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And the king said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Even the fact that John the Baptist was where he was in the wilderness in Judea may be in connection with Elijah. The wilderness of Judea is a rather broad area. But John's specific location in that wilderness is indicated by the fact that he was beside the Jordan. That would mean he was north of the Dead Sea rather than in the more extensive desert area south of Jericho, which is significant perhaps because it was in just that same area across the Jordan from Jericho where, according to 2 Kings 2, verses 4 to 12, the prophet Elijah taken up into heaven. Some scholars suggest that perhaps it was in that same place where the new Elijah was expected to appear again. Meaning that where John was and what John wore and what John said, if you heard the echoes in the Malachi passages I read, all of it pointed to one thing. He is Elijah who is to come, as Jesus would say. John is he who would prepare the way before the Lord. Which is perhaps why Matthew also says in verse 3 of our chapter that John the Baptist is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. When he said in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths 
straight. Here, as in Malachi, this voice is of the one who prepares the way of the Lord. Only in the context of Isaiah 40, God comes to lead his people to new life. <laughs> to lead his people in their new exodus, in fact, through the wilderness, from Babylon, back to Palestine, in the context of where we are in Isaiah chapter 40. So that if Malachi chapter 3 and 4, that Jesus refers to when talking about John, if Malachi 3 and 4 is primarily seen as a warning of coming judgment, Isaiah chapter 40 is a passage associated, of course, with comfort and salvation. Listen to Isaiah 40 verse 1 and following. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. Wait for next week. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So that I'm suggesting there's two texts in view here behind the coming of John the Baptist. The connection between them, the connection between Isaiah 40 verse 3 and Malachi 3 verse 1 is not something that's made explicit in Matthew's gospel. But it is in Mark, where in Mark chapter 1 verses 2 and 3, the very beginning of Mark's gospel, both Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, verse 1, are quoted together to explain John's appearance. And I think the point is that in the long-awaited prophetic ministry of John the Baptist, we are meant to see both judgment and comfort, brothers and sisters. Because the coming of the Lord means both of those things. As he who would prepare the way of the Lord in Malachi, John is the Elijah who is to come, as Jesus says, announcing the arrival of the Lord himself in judgment over his people. At the same time, as the Isianic voice in the wilderness, John is the prophetic messenger of comfort, of salvation, restoration, and of the revelation of the glory of the Lord. And so it is with all of that in view, then, that we turn now to John's message. Because that's where we see, I think, both parts of what I just described as best I can from the prophetic background that John's message brings both a note of judgment and a note of comfort, which we experience depends on how we respond to it. We find the core of John's message and the call to respond to it right up front in verse 2. Matthew writes, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, every part of that verse 2 is significant, but before we move through it, quickly, if you do have your Bible there and want to just turn over to Matthew 4, verse 17, 
I want for you to see this. Because what was Jesus saying when he began to preach? Well, it's precisely the same thing. Matthew 4, verse 17, repent, Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then if you turn again over to Matthew 10, verse 7, you'll see what it is that Jesus told his 12 disciples to proclaim using that same verb of proclamation as we have here with John and with Jesus. And what was it in Matthew 10, verse 7? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that John's message here is one that Jesus himself and then Jesus' disciples also proclaim. And it has two elements to it. There's a command given, and then the reason for that command is provided. So let's look at both. First, there's a command given. And the command, of course, is to repent. Repent, John proclaims, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is repentance? Well, in, in Greek usage from outside and before the New Testament, the verb here can be used to refer to, strictly speaking, an intellectual change of thinking, changing your way of thought. But that's not really what's in view in the way the New Testament uses the verb. In the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament are especially influenced by the concept of repentance that we frequently find in the Old Testament prophets, which has the sense of turning or returning one's whole self. Again and again, the prophets call people into a right relationship with God that they say must affect every aspect of their lives. The central command of the scriptures is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, as Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 puts it. Repentance is about turning your life around to live that way. Repentance in the Old Testament always called for a change in a person's attitude toward God that involved the whole person that encompassed one's actions and one's overall direction in life. As one commentator puts it, what's meant isn't merely an intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance, but a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action. This is, of course, why later in verse 8 of Matthew 3, when John the Baptist confronts the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what he says is, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It was to such transformation that John called those who listened to his preaching. But secondly, he provided a reason for that call. John goes on to give the ground for repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says. So let's take a little time to discuss the meaning of Matthew's phrase there, the kingdom of heaven. To begin with, if you know the Gospels, in Mark and Luke's Gospel, it's generally called the kingdom of God. And though scholars debate it, I don't think the variation here in Matthew of calling it 
usually the kingdom of heaven, is terribly significant. Heaven is a way of describing the realm where God is. And the word was sometimes used as a substitution for the name of God when Jewish authors or speakers were reluctant to use that name. So that as far as I can see, kingdom of heaven in Matthew is interchangeable with kingdom of God in the other gospels. But what I think matters most is that when the gospels speak of the kingdom, rather than denoting a specific time or place or situation called the kingdom, the phrase the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven denotes a dynamic concept, the concept of God ruling. In the English as we use it today, the noun kingdom almost always has a concrete sense, as in it refers to a place, like the kingdom of a place, or maybe to a group of people who are underneath a common rule. But that's not though those are not removed entirely from the sense in Scripture, it's not the primary meaning of the word in Scripture. What's in view here isn't so much a concrete kingdom as it is the dynamic rule, the kingship, if you will, the sovereignty of the Lord. In fact, the English phrase, kingdom of God, derives from the King James Version of the Bible which was translated at a time when kingdom in English still carried this more dynamic sense of kingship. Perhaps it would be better to understand the kingdom of heaven is at hand to mean something like God's promised reign is beginning. Or even God is now taking control. That's what had always been the ultimate prophetic hope of the Scriptures. As one commentator puts it, from Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament Scriptures teach that God as the creator of this world is in control of it and all who are in it. But alongside this, there developed a sense that all was not as God would have it in his world. And with this, the hope of a time to come when God's rule would be more fully and openly implemented and acknowledged among the people of earth. Throughout the Old Testament, there was a rising expectation of a divine visitation that would establish justice, crush oppression, and renew the very universe. The biblical goal is the manifest exercise of God's sovereignty his kingship, his reign on earth and among men, end quote. You might think of texts like Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, which says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Even the regular synagogue liturgy at the time of Jesus, concluded with the words of this prayer, May God let his kingship rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the whole lifetime of the house of Israel, 
speedily and soon. That was the hope. The hope that would have been stirred up by John the Baptist's proclamation. The hope of God's rule coming soon. Because what is perhaps most stunning is that John says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This isn't the language of an event still in the future. John's saying this is now in the process of happening that in some profound sense, God's rule has already arrived. John claims that the point is, it's in the dawning of the person of Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord whose way John is preparing. Oh, there was much yet for them to grasp about the nature of Jesus' kingship, and the whole Gospel of Matthew will unveil it. As we'll see throughout Matthew, the kingdom came with Jesus and his preaching and his miracles. The kingdom also came with his death and with his resurrection. And the kingdom will come fully and finally at the end of the age. There's much for us to learn about the kingship of God in the Gospel of Matthew. It would not always be what the people expected. But here at the outset, John's was a message that generated enormous excitement and response. Verse 5 says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Gripped by John's startling declaration of the nearness of God's kingdom, they demonstrate repentance by confessing their sins and being baptized. As one author puts it, the ordinary people of Israel indicate by their radical repentance that they have heard in John's message a warning from a prophet of God. In the light of the imminent judgment, they must be forthright. They must show God by their actions and by words that they are indeed putting their old ways behind and are ready for the arrival of his kingdom. Because according to John, in keeping with the warning of judgment from the prophet Malachi, the coming of this kingdom will bring wrath on those who do not repent. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Those who respond to John's message and repent will escape God's wrath. There can be no appeal to religious or ethnic heritage, verse 9, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John taught and Jesus in the New Testament affirmed that acceptance by God has nothing to do with lineage or heritage, only repentance. Paul says in Romans 9, verse 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Earlier in Galatians 3, verse 29, Paul put it this way, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
if you are Christ's. I baptize you with water for repentance, John says in verse 11 of our text, but he, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is only setting the stage, preparing the way. One who is more powerful is soon to arrive. John's baptism will be superseded. His was a baptism of repentance, but the coming one will inaugurate a baptism that brings both blessing and judgment. As I understand it, what John's saying is that Jesus will baptize the repentant those who are prepared to receive him with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. But the unrepentant, he will baptize with the judgment of eternal fire. John declares that the time of this baptism is near. The coming Messiah already has the winnowing fork in his hand. The harvest has begun. The threshed grain is thrown up into the air with a winnowing fork so that the wind can blow away the chaff while the heavier grain falls back onto the threshing floor. And only when all the chaff has been separated from the grain is the latter collected and stored away while the chaff is burned. John's challenge to his listeners is the same for us today. Are we wheat? Or are we chaff? It can be easy reading this text to focus on the judgment of the chaff by the coming one, the coming Lord. It's easy to focus on the judgment brought about by this coming Messiah, Jesus the Lord, and that's true, and that judgment deserves our attention. As Malachi warns, when the messenger comes, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? The arrival of God's kingdom in the preaching of John the Baptist is clearly a warning of judgment. We must repent. But there is another aspect to our passage this afternoon, and it's the message of comfort that comes from the voice in the wilderness in Isaiah 40. There is here in John's proclamation an invitation to life, an expectation even, of real change in the lives of those who respond. Just as John fully expected the coming one to bring wrath and final judgment on the unrepentant, he also fully expected the coming of the kingdom to include the gathering of the repentant into safekeeping. John is inviting those who respond to his message to experience this life, to experience to escape from the wrath to come and to await the baptism of the Holy Spirit that the Messiah will bring. The arrival of the kingdom will be accompanied by the Spirit who gives life to all who respond. In Ezekiel, the promised age of the pouring out of the Spirit is described as the age of God's new covenant. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27 says, And I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, John declares. For some, it will mean judgment. For others, comfort. All depends on our response to a single command. Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.